and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called, him, called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them? But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are in awe of everything you do for us and everything you've done for us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, the word that became flesh. We thank you for this time to learn more and to draw nearer to you. We thank you, Father, with all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Kim. Nice work. High five? Yeah. Okay. That's a right on. <laughs> well, as John uh, mentioned earlier this morning, we are um, taking our time uh, studying Advent this season, and uh, we've looked at uh, the birth, the life, and now we come to the death. And then I think, G, I think John gets maybe my favorite part is the resurrection, but um, I'm talking about death. I don't know how I always get the, the suffering and the death stuff, but that's a, it's a bit of my wheelhouse, I think. I don't know. Um, but let's just, why don't we get into this? For us to uh, truly understand and cherish it, uh, Christmas must come with a cross. As we continue to examine um, uh, Advent, we will look at the aspect uh, which can sometimes be uh, overlooked and, frankly, ignored uh, during Christmas time. Because um, how many of you read about uh, the death of Jesus on Christmas? But the story of Scripture is that we have a Savior who suffers and dies. And that is... Uh, a big part of the truth. It's a big part of the plan. 
And in our text today, we find Jesus explaining to his disciples, and this is interesting, for the third time, mind you, that death and suffering is, in fact, a necessary component in his kingdom strategy. Third time he's told them as they walk and talk and they spend time with one another. The first time it says that Jesus plainly told them that he was going to suffer and die. In fact, he said that I must suffer and die. But he told them that suffering and death is a necessary component in the kingdom strategy. And as I said, perhaps you recall the first time because it was there that Jesus told them this information, and he was met with a rather robust uh, rebuke, a robust disagreement. It's, it's up there on the screen for you. Mark chapter 8, 31, 32 says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, notice it, must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days rise again, And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. We don't know uh, exactly uh, what what Peter actually said, but I imagine it was something like, hey, uh, Jesus, you really need to stop this negative talk. We've, we, I think we have a good thing going. You know, remember, we're, we're kind of on the heels of you um, feeding the 5,000. That was a pretty sweet miracle. Let's keep up that momentum, and let's, let's like, stop with the negative talk. Imagine if it, was, if it was in modern-day vernacular, he would say, I've been listening to a podcast, and I've, I, I've been learning about manifestation, and I think it's really going to catch on. Uh, you know, don't, don't think any ne- negative thoughts. Uh, have you ever understood the power of positive thinking? All this, silly, all this silliness aside, the idea that the Messiah would, would suffer and die was a shocking one. These guys had not understood, and Israel had not understood this aspect of the the Messiah's reign and and kingdom. In fact, before this moment, Israel had never connected suffering with the Messiah. Even though they had passages like Isaiah 43, 44, and and 53 that depict a suffering uh, servant, a suffering savior, they, they never understood, even though that these passages existed in their uh, history, they had never connected suffering and death to hope. And who does? Who does, in fact, connect those things to hope? They had never seen those things as necessary aspects of the kingdom strategy. And yet, this is what Jesus told them. He said, I must suffer many things. I must suffer many things. Three times he tells them, and three times he gets a variety of responses. Uh, He tells them in different ways beyond that, and they still don't quite understand. But we'll talk about understanding this in a minute. But what I think we need to understand first and foremost, when Jesus says, I must suffer, he's he's saying that he was always planning on dying. His beautiful and puzzling life would culminate voluntarily on the, uh, uh, in death on a thief's cross. That's what the Gospels tell us. And for those of us who, you know, have a hard time processing all that, it seems like a sad statement. 
seems pretty unproductive, and frankly, it seems unnecessary. And that's exactly why Peter took him aside and rebuked him. That's why he took him aside and rebuked him, because he didn't understand. So why? Why did Jesus have to die? And why do we, if we're going to truly cherish Christmas, why must it come with a cross? Well, Jesus, in the third time of passing this information along to the disciples, he says in Mark 10.45, which is one of my most favorite passages of all time, he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, I found that this particular passage for me is like a, when my, my, my heart grow, grows cold and I, and I don't necessarily feel fire, I always know there's an ember of Mark chapter 10, verse 45, laying in the pile. I can always recall it to remembrance, and it begins to warm in my heart the purpose of our Lord, that suffering and that a cross comes with Christmas. And Jesus is beautiful, wonderful, like I said, a beautiful life, but it's a puzzling one. But it's important for us to understand that he is set apart from every founder of every other major religion for this fact. When, when it says that he came to serve and not be served, it means that he was laying down uh, privileges that rightly belonged to him. He was laying that down. He was doing it willingly. And the word ransom here in the Greek is lutron, which means to buy the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. The preposition for, which follows, is anti, anti, um, which means instead of, meaning, meaning that on the cross, Jesus, Jesus was volunteering to be a sacrificial substitute for sinful humanity. So when that's what Jesus is saying in Mark 10, 45. I am dying in the place of the sinner. I'm, I'm giving myself in, in the place of the person who should really be paying that penalty. This is what Christians, if you are truly a Christian, this is what it means to believe and what we believe about the cross. Um, Christ, on the cross, served as an infinite payment for an infinite evil. Infinite payment for an infinite evil. Um, and critics, they say that the cross lacks elegance. So it's savage and barbaric. And skeptics suggest that these ideas are not dissimilar to the primitive perspectives of the ancients. In fact, if you're familiar with Homer's epic, uh, the Iliad and, and the Odyssey, uh, I had to read those in high school. I don't know if you had to read those in high school. It was kind of dreadful, but um, I did. You know, you had to. And I remember in, in Homer's epic, the, the Iliad, it tells the tale of Agamemnon, and he's re receiving favorable winds, which are necessary for him to reach the Battle of Troy, only after he sacrificed his daughter to appease the goddess Artemis. And so, in ancient history, this is just common for the gods to ask savage demands out of their followers. But I love what uh, Timothy Keller explains in his book, King's Cross. He says, but this is not what's going on here at all in the gospel. And why not, you may say? If God is really a loving God, why doesn't he just forgive everybody? Why did Jesus have to go through suffering into death? Why do you have to be a ransom? Here's the beginning of an answer. 
Jesus didn't have to die uh, despite God's love. He had to die because of God's love. And it had to be this way because all of life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. Really, I love that line. All of life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. This is something that we should think on, especially when we cherish, truly cherish and embrace Christmas. We should really think on this. And think about it. To love someone who has their life together, who doesn't have needs, is an enjoyable, um, easy, and rare process, right? Loving people who have it together, so to speak, uh, is, a, is, a, is a simple process, and it's easy, and it's rare. But to love someone who is difficult, which is more common, it takes work and sacrifice, right? People, who, people are primarily uh, troubled creatures. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Um, uh, they're primarily troubled creatures, suffering from all sorts of trauma, which makes them difficult to be around. Have you ever have you noticed these things? Um, uh, so many in our society are sinking. And if we engage and attach to them, we run the risk of sinking as well. Which is why, if we're being honest, when it comes to difficult people, we are looking to jump ship. We're looking for, it doesn't matter how choppy the waters may be. It's, it's a, it seems like a, a better option than staying on this sinking ship. However, to actually love people, it requires a sacrifice. To embrace the traumatized creature is to willingly, willingly sort of sink with them. To take the ride with them, if you, if you will. Another even more striking example is that, a, is that of parenting. If you want to think about sacrificial love, um, think about parenting. Think about the, the dependency of a child and the necessity of the parent to sacrifice in order to help the child make progress. Literally, uh, if a baby isn't held, it doesn't develop. I actually learned this from Beth. She went on a, a mission trip to Romania when she was in high school, and she went to an orphanage. And one of the needs in this orphanage was just to hold babies. The babies were, they were, the, they, 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 they were so, so understaffed and so overwhelmed with, with orphan babies that many of the babies were neglected. I mean, they got fed and changed, but they needed to be held. And so a big ministry was just going into this orphanage and holding children. In fact, there's actually science around this. I was fascinated to learn that a, in a 2020 study uh, found that uh, infant care, caregiver physical closeness activates oxytocin as well as a certain, ner- a certain nerve fiber pathways. In other words, holding your child helps to uh, activate their hypothalamus. It's wild, but it's true. Of course, in order to do that, you have to make sacrifices. In order to give the child, a child the attention they need, you, you have to make sacrifice. I could go, I could go on and on and on, but, but a present, gentle, loving parent at every phase of, de- of development is critical to the successful de- development of a, of a human life. And like I said, it requires sacrifice. And that's true, and that's, and that's not always easy with kids. The, the things that kids think and, and what they invite us to participate in is not always the most uh, uh, intellectually stimulating stuff, right? Uh, but they need our investment. 
I go, I go to my buddy John's house uh, every week, um, we, and we, have a, we, sh- we share a meal together. And when I walk into the house, I am met, met by an onslaught of my nephews, the little Wolfinger boys. And now one is not so little anymore. He's getting big. Link's getting big. But I get an onslaught of the nephews, and it's, a, and it's just a barrage of a, a deluge of information. It's like they take out the fire hose, and it's telling me everything. I feel like they're telling me everything on the Internet in that moment. <laughs> John thinks I know everything on the Internet, but I think they're sp- me with everything on the internet. Um, and I'll tell you what, I'm not, no offense, Lincoln, but I'm not always interested in what you guys got going on. <laughs> but, but I love them. I love them so much. And therefore, I'm interested. Therefore, I'm invested. Bring it on, you know, and I'll try to keep up. Because not only do they have a lot of information, but they are shifting gears week after week after week. I can't keep up with it. So anyway, you know, that's part of being an uncle, I guess. And you know, as I was thinking of sacrificial love, I couldn't help but think of my my parents. And in fact, it it got me pretty emotional. I was, you know, that I, I share... Sometimes I share all, most of the time I share all my sermon with Beth, um, but this week I only just shared little snippets of it because she's recovering from a hysterectomy right now, so you can be praying for her. But I was sharing this part with her, and it got me very, very emotional, actually to tears, brought me to tears, because I was thinking about the the sacrificial love of my parents. My father, um, who died some years ago, he worked as a barber, standing all day long on a leg that was significantly shorter than the other. Uh, It was like a, he had about a, I think it was like a six inch lift on one leg. And then he only had about half of a hip. Long story, injured it in a childhood accident. and Medicine wasn't quite at the place where it it could be to really help him. So he lived his entire life uh, suffering, literally in pain every single day of his life. Uh, and it never stopped my dad from hobbling off to work every day to provide for his family. I, li- I literally, and this is what's so hard, it's like I literally watched my dad um, give his body for his family. Get, that's what he did every day, day in, day out, going to that job. And, and I, remember, I, I remember being happy to take his boots off and bring him a, bring him a cold Budweiser uh, at, at the end of the day because, man, that guy gave everything he had. To the very end, to the very end, my dad, you know, it was, it was squeezed, you know, spent, spent for his, for his family. And one year, my, my brother and I, we, we, we each wanted a pair of Jordan 5s. I talked to Lincoln about this before, but uh, my mother uh, uh, put them on layaway. And, you know, if you, uh, young people, if you don't know what layaway is, talk to an old person. Um, <laughs> but my mother put them on layaway for an entire summer, and, and she would uh, pay for a, a portion of the debt off each payday over the entire summer. And, uh, you know, it, it actually crushed me. <laughs> Watching that as a kid crushed me because I said, I'm never going to ask my parents for expensive things again because I saw just the cost, the cost uh, on a societal level, on a, the cost on a financial level. I just saw it, and I just thought, I, 
I can't ask for shoes again, but you know, your dad's got a few bucks. You can ask for all the shoes, Link. <laughs> and mom, some of these things may seem small and trivial to some. Seeing my parents sacrifice for their children shaped me, as you can see, tremendously. They weren't perfect, but they sacrificed. Suffered physically and endured the societal shame of having to grind out the purchase of a pair of shoes just so they could care for a kid like me, a young punk uh, like me. They paid so many prices over the years, so I didn't ever have to pay those prices. Um, And here's the thing about substitutionary sacrificial love is is that someone, what that means is that someone always has to pay. And in parenting, what we're learning is that it's, it's always that way, and it's, in parenting, it's either us or our children, right? Someone has to pay. And if the parent doesn't pay, have to pay, then the child pays later on in life, you know? All of life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. And if we can see this, and this is why it's important, if we can see this on a temporal scale, then we can also see it on a cosmic scale. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to do. And that's why Christmas is so profound if it comes with a cross. Because there we see it on a cosmic level. The gift of the incarnation, which is what, we're been ta- what we've been talking about for the past three weeks, is, is that Yahweh, an ancient God, he is so different from all the other ancient gods. So different. He's the God who becomes man and lives a life we could never live and then dies the death we ought to die. He suffers. All that we might be rescued and liberated and see how truly loved we actually are. And that's why that substitutionary sacrifice is so critical, not just to Christmas, but to everyday life as a Christian. If we can see that, then we can be changed. If we can see that, our anger can die, our hopelessness can pass, our heartache can be mended. If we can see the true scope of the love of Jesus Christ on that cross. I love Timothy Keller, as you all know, and he says on this subject, the only way that Jesus could redeem us was to give his life as a ransom. God couldn't just say, I forgive everybody. In the creation, God could say, let there be light, and there was light. God could say, let there be vegetation, and there was vegetation. God could say, let there be sun, moon, stars, and there were sun, moon, and stars. But he couldn't just say, let there be forgiveness. That's simply not the way forgiveness works. And those of us who have forgiven know what he means. God created the world in an instant, and it was a beautiful process. He recreated the world on the cross, and it was a horrible process. That's how it works. Love that really changes things and redeems things is always a substitutionary sacrifice. Always. If any of you have ever forgiven anybody for real, you know that you have to die on a sword in order to do it. It hurts terribly to do it because you have to die to your pride. You have to, let your, you have to, you have to surrender your anger. You have, to, you have to relinquish your thirst for vengeance. And that's why forgiving is so hard. Jesus, he jumps on the ultimate sword so we don't have to take it. That's what 
the gospel tells us. That's what Christmas tells us. And if we don't understand that, then we are missing something really beautiful and, and truly helpful to us. If we understand this, it will tr- change everything. But here's the thing. We are slow. We're slow to embrace the way of Jesus. We're slow to um, platform death and suffering in our understanding of Christmas and Advent and um, the, our daily living. We're slow to this. And, I, and I'm just so thankful that uh, the other disciples were slow as well. Uh, Peter, James, and John, they were all uh, slow to understanding the teaching. Peter, in that first announcement, as we all, you know, as I mentioned a bit earlier, he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. And how often are we the, the, the fool that takes Jesus aside and says, yeah, I know you've uh, told us what your plan is, but I have a better idea. And how do we do that? Well, um, often in our anger, when the Lord's will is happening, and it's not going the way we wanted it to go, and so then we choose anger, and we're, whether or not we're articulating it, we're telling him, hey, you got it wrong. You got it wrong. And then what is worry? What's, the, what's worry? Well, worry is saying, I, I'm pretty sure you're going to get it wrong, right? So I'm going to just fret over it. We're not much different from Peter. And then the reality is, is we're not much different from James and John either because I see myself in these servants of the Lord as well. And it, I, think it, I think it's because where we are, this side of the resurrection, and John gets to touch on that next week, but because of where we are on the re- resurrection, we can look at these stories fondly and, and kind of laugh that after Jesus tells them for the third time that he's going to die and suffer and that he must do these things, uh, Peter and, and James, or, I mean, James and John, they're, they're just looking for uh, their places in parliament, in, in the Lord's par- parliament. They, they just want places of power. They just want to be in a high and lofty position. That's where they want to be. And isn't that true of, of us, is that we want to be seen in some way and whether or not we'll voice that you know, accurately and authentically, there's this truth. We, we want some of the glow, some of the shine of what Jesus alone is supposed to be receiving. They don't listen. They don't observe Jesus enough to learn and to change. And if we're being humble, if we're letting the, the substitutionary sacrifice humble us, guess what? That will humble us as well. And, we, and, and I know it's hard to listen and learn from the Lord. But, but that's what Advent is for. Advent is for us to thank God that we have these moments. This, we have this Sunday morning where we can just slow down. I'm not telling you to go, you know, wrap presents, buy presents, you know, go to that party, this party, uh, make all those communications, send out those Christmas cards, et cetera, et cetera. It's not, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we need moments like these where we just slow down and remember that what makes Christmas truly extraordinary is a cross. So I think that's, you yeah, know, we'll, we'll keep going a little bit more. How about a little bit more? I, I, I was like, I kind of want to be done, but um, I wrote some more stuff. <laughs> I wrote a few more things. Um, Spurgeon 
he wrote about when he was reading, when he was uh, actually preaching on this particular passage, he, he had this uh, to say in terms of our response and understanding of um, our Lord who comes to serve and not be served and give his life a ransom for many. He says, the way up is downward. That is not a contradiction, but it is a paradox. Seek and you shall rise. Be willing to serve the very least and you shall have honor amongst your brethren. Remember that the king of kings was the servant of servants. The way up is down. Kingdom of God does not make sense to the world. And it, it didn't make sense to the people then. It doesn't make sense to the people now. And it only makes sense to those of us who find the cross necessary and beautiful and really find um, strength and power in the resurrection. But if we, here's how we know we get it. That even though it, it's a paradox, the way up is down, it's attractive. We're fascinated by it. We're, we're, we're interested in, in enough to pursue it. That's how we know we're getting the gospel. And I have to admit, there's a, this, this is why I was wondering if I should keep going, because I, I have to admit that this week was, uh, I was not loving the process of putting this sermon together. And I know I've said this, I probably say this pretty too often, but John's, he's over there uh, giggling because he knows me. I, I don't, I have angst around everything, but I had, a, I had, I think I had a little extra angst this week, you know, probably the stress of Beth going into surgery and my mind goes to the worst case scenario. I'm like, yeah, well, it was nice having a wife and all these things, you know, that's just how I work. That's how my mind works. I, I have a, I'm a worst case scenario guy. And if, it, if it's better than that, then it's good. Uh, it's, it's kind of, you know, there's some re- rationale to it. Um, but I tell you what, I, I can be sad and uh, be a sad and grumpy human sometimes. And, um, and I tell you what, this, this year, I, I just found myself, this, especially this week, just so tired of suffering. So tired of, of suffering. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm really tired of not just my own suffering, but just I'm so tired of everybody else suffering. It's, so, it's just exhausting. And then to make matters worse, I ran across this stupid song called, from U2 called Peace on Earth, um, which frankly broke my heart. And I'm not going to read the whole, um, the whole song to you, but I want to read a, a, a part of it so you can understand why it really crushed me. Um, it says, Jesus, can you take the time to throw a drowning man a line? Peace on Earth. To tell the ones who hear no sound, wh- whose sons are living in the ground, peace on Earth. Jesus, in the song you wrote, the words are sticking in my throat. Peace on earth. Hope is, hope here every Christmas time, but hope and history won't rhyme. So what's it worth, this peace on earth? Man, if I stopped the sermon there, it would be really a bummer, right? You see, Bono is right and he's wrong. He's right. The hope and history won't rhyme. They don't rhyme. Especially if you're waiting for Jesus to drop you a, a line. Because real, reality is that he did so much more than just drop us a line. What Christmas is telling us is that uh, he came in the flesh and suffered with those he created. Christmas is only profound when it comes with a cross. And so, my brothers and sisters and friends, I invite you this Christmas season, this Advent season, 
to slow down and behold the man. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and thank you for being present. And my tears are are one of grief and heartbreak, but also of of hope and expectancy. And I pray, God, that in the paradox of all that, you'd continue to show me the beauty of your way. And I pray that you would show each and every one of us today in this place the beauty of your way. It is about you. And somehow, you make it about us in such a sweet, kind way. Thank you, Jesus. Help us to continue to gaze upon your work and your life, your death, and thank you for the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.